Our scripture reading for today comes from 2 Corinthians, and we are in a series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, hello to City Grace and Grace Faith, uh, those of you who are streaming in, and of course, hello to uh, Good News, uh, those of you who are here, and those of you who are online. What a weird situation that this uh, pandemic has created, right? Anyway, we are going through 2 Corinthians, and uh, I'm actually going to read a little bit Uh, before of what originally was scheduled. So I'm going to start at chapter 3, verse 7, and I'm going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. So this is the word of the Lord. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, this time and uh, that we're joined across, um, you know, so many different platforms and, uh, you know, in a way, uh, I guess, transcending space. Uh, We pray, though, uh, wherever we are, from wherever we are, uh, that you speak to us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, we would hear from you, from your word, and you would impress upon us. the glory of uh, not just the gospel message, but the very glory that the gospel message points to, uh, which is you, uh, that you would fill us a sense of uh, your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going through this series on 2 Corinthians, and uh, as I say every week, one of the reasons why I wanted to look at this letter is because I wanted to reflect on this theme of weakness. And, you know, I think this has been a time where at least collectively, not just the people here, uh, but probably collectively in like the world, right? There's a sense of 
uh, being bound by limitation. And when we feel uh, weak, when we feel maybe bound by certain limitations, our own limitations, I think our inclination is either to hide from our weakness or to grow discouraged and uh, feel a little bit of despair because of our weakness. Uh, but I guess my hope is, as we go throughout this series, is that we would embrace that weakness because we might be pleasantly surprised and find God in that weakness. And when we find God in that weakness, uh, the paradox is going to be that's where we'll really discover true power and true strength that we long for. And if the gospel shows us anything, it is that weakness and defeat and death are the ways towards power and victory and resurrection. Now, one of the things that kids like to do, if you've been around kids, uh, they like to ask the question, why? And at least in my household, we've gotten into these like patterns of conversation, I would say at least monthly, where they just want to be uh, a little bit funny, maybe a little bit annoying, and they just kind of ask that question, why, right, endlessly. So it almost doesn't matter um, what your answer is because their question is going to be why. And I might say something like, go brush your teeth. They might say, why? I'll say, because you're going to get cavities. Why? Well, because bacteria will grow in your mouth and eat away at your enamel and rot your teeth. Why? Because that's just how the human body works. Why? Because that's how God created the bodies to work. Why? I don't know why, right? Just do it, right? And usually you have to end up somewhere that is like foundational and you can't go beyond a certain point and you kind of just say like, you know, that's the way it is or that's how God made it. And that's usually where the conversation ends up. And of course, that can be a, you know, a tiresome exercise, but it's not an entirely useless exercise if you want to get to the foundational level of things, right? So what if you, we were to ask this question? What is so good about the gospel? You could say, well, the gospel tells us that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead. Well, why is that so good? Because it means our sins are forgiven. Well, why is that so good? Because it means that we are spared from God's righteous judgment. Well, why is that so good? Because it means we get eternal life over eternal condemnation. Well, why is that good? Because it means we get to be with God. Well, why is that good? Because God is glorious. And why is that good? Well, it just is, right? <laughs> and so you kind of get to this foundational level of why it's good to even uh, have this gospel message and why it's good to believe in the gospel. And I think it's good because it means we get to be with God and we get to behold his glory. And I don't know if there is any greater good beyond that. And if it's true, then what Paul says here in this passage that we just read is really incredible because he is telling us about something called the new covenant where the veil is lifted and we get to see God and what he calls in uh, chapter 4 verse 4 the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that's what the new covenant gives us now last week we started talking about this new covenant and what Paul essentially says amounts to this under the new covenant and through this ministry of the Holy Spirit we have the freedom to come to God and to behold his glory. And we see from Paul's life that there's a lot of implications to this, right? Paul's life wasn't an easy life. It was life filled with hardship and suffering and loss. And Paul can, in light of this, talk about having hope. And he can say things like, therefore, we do not lose heart. He can also refrain from participating in disgraceful, underhanded ways. 
because in view of the glory of God, his life is no longer driven by his own sense of status, his own financial gain, because his heart is made full by the glory of God. And so when we feel a lack of hope or when we lose heart or when uh, we get discouraged, oftentimes our first thought is going to be, man, you know, I really, I just need a new job or I just need a change or I just need a, a higher salary or that promotion or I just need a, a spouse or I just need a, a break from the kids or, right? We, we think of all the, these things that we need and of that nature. And of course, I'm not saying we don't need those things on a secondary, third, fourth level, but you see at a foundational level, what we really need is to behold the glorious presence of God. So today, we'll continue to look at what Paul says about the realities of the New Covenant, especially when he compares it to the Old. And uh, we're actually going to start from a portion in Exodus, because when Paul is writing this section, he's thinking about uh, these stories in Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 32 to 34. And that's where you get that famous story of the golden calf incident. And that's also where uh, the Ten Commandments are given. And if you remember the golden calf incident, you know, the Israelites, after they are freed from the bondage of Egypt, and they're, they're kind of wandering towards a land flowing with milk and honey, this land of promise, uh, what they do is they construct this golden calf, this idol. And they say of this idol, this golden calf, they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so you see, it's never a good thing when you give credit to uh, this idol for your freedom when God is actually the one who delivered you. But that's what they do, and so Moses has to ultimately intercede on behalf of the people so that God wouldn't destroy them. And when he's on this mountain and he's, uh, you know, he's interceding on behalf of his people, Moses asks for something that uh, I think is really uh, amazing, something that we ought to think about. Moses asks to see God's glory. And if you think about it in Moses' situation, that's like a really odd request to ask considering the situation he finds himself in. Now, if you're in Moses' shoes, you can imagine this is probably a very stressful time for him as a leader. He carried this burden of leadership to lead an entire people out of Egypt into this promised land. He's responsible, right? Now, getting them out of Egypt seemed impossible, but God was faithful and God was the one who rescued them. And you would think that would ease his stress a little bit, but now the Israelites, they kind of do something that is extremely offensive to the God who rescued them, and they build this golden calf. And now Moses has to deal with that, right? He has to deal with what God calls these stiff-necked people. And so first what he does um, is he burns this golden calf into powder, he scatters it in the water, and then he makes them drink it. Then he has the Levites kill about 3,000 men who wouldn't repent of their idolatry, and I'm sure that wasn't pleasant. <laughs> Second, right, he has to go up to this mountain. He has to talk to God. He has to in intercede on behalf of these people so that God would not destroy them. And if you were Moses and you had this burden of leadership, how would you feel? Uh, I imagine he probably felt some kind of combination of feeling frustrated, maybe exhausted, maybe even angry. But in this context, this is the context where Moses asks to see God's glory. And that's always been an interesting prayer to me. Because Moses is supposed to be interceding on behalf of his people, but uh, in a way, it almost seems like an afterthought. I actually think uh, he knew it was interrelated and connected, but uh, it sounds like an afterthought at least. So he says to God in Exodus 33, he says, If I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And so the first thing he's asking God is, you know, show me your ways so I might know you. 
And then also consider these people, right? As, <laughs> consider this nation as your people. And I think Moses understood something very uh, deep and something very foundational that the most important thing and the thing that he, he needed the most and the thing that his people probably needed the most is to know God and to know his ways. He doesn't ask that God would give him strength or wisdom or courage to lead these people out of the land, which would all be legitimate things to ask for and to pray for. But what Moses asks is this, please show me your glory. God has been pretty agreeable to the things that Moses had asked for in general. Uh, God, please don't destroy your people. And God says, okay. God, please don't withdraw your presence from your people. God says, okay. God, please show me your glory. And God says, mm, I can't do that. Right? I can't do that because then you'll die. And then he says, here's what I can do, though. When my glory passes by you, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but you can't see my face. And so even to Moses, God's glory is somewhat veiled under the old covenant. God's glory is something that becomes dangerous on account of the reality of sin. Now at the end of chapter 34, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and even though uh, God only showed Moses his back, that was enough glory to actually make Moses' face shine. Right? So he comes down this mountain, the people see Moses' face, and it's shining, and what the, the text says is they were afraid to come near him. And so Moses, what Moses would do is he wore a veil to cover his face. So he would go up the mountain, he would speak to God and remove the veil as he spoke to God, then he would come down the mountain, speak to his people, unveiled, right? And then after speaking to his people, he would put a veil back on until it was time to speak to God again. That's what it says in Exodus 34. Now what's interesting about the story in Exodus is that we're not really told the reason why the Israelites are afraid to come near to Moses with his shining face, which also means we don't really know the reason why uh, Moses put a veil over his face uh, to begin with. But as we come back to our passage here in 2 Corinthians, this is a story that Paul has in mind as he's writing to the Corinthians and as he's talking about glory, as he's talking about the veil. And when you have the story uh, of Exodus in mind, then what Paul says here really is incredible. Because what Paul says is that under this new covenant, that veil is now lifted. Right? In 3.18, he says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that very thing that Moses asked for and God could not give is now made available under this new covenant through this gospel message and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's now made available. Now, even though Exodus doesn't explain why Moses put a veil over his face, Paul actually does give us the reason. He gives us his interpretation of why Moses did that. And you find it in, uh, starting in verse 12. And he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Uh, if we were doing a Bible study, you would kind of be puzzled by that verse. Okay, what exactly does that mean? Uh, because, you know, it's caused uh, commentators, too, uh, a lot of confusion of understanding what Paul actually means by that. Uh, and people have, you know, usually been divided into two camps. They've either said, you know, Moses veiled himself in order to hide something from the people, or others have said Moses veiled himself in order to protect the people from uh, some kind of consequence. And so, for example, under the first view, maybe Moses veiled himself to hide 
that uh, the glory was fading, right? That's what some people would say. Other people would say, under the second view, Moses veiled himself to protect the people of Israel from the consequences of gazing even at the reflected glory of God. And without getting too deep into the weeds, I think the second interpretation makes the most sense to me. And I think Moses probably veiled his face to protect the people from the consequences of seeing even the reflected glory of God. It's a little like the sun. You know, if you, if you gaze at the sun, uh, it's going to have some kind of negative consequences on uh, your eyes, and it might damage your eyes. But the reflected sun can also hurt your eyes as well. So if you've ever, like, you know, driven a car um, on a very clear and sunny day, and the car in front of you, the sun hits it in a certain way, and then the, the reflection goes into your eye, right? Uh, if you, you know, that can be damaging as well. So even though you're not looking directly at the sun, the reflection of the sun is so bright that it can hurt your eyes as well. And so what do you need? You need some kind of buffer. You need something like sunglasses, right, to buffer that brightness. And Moses' veil is like sunglasses in that it acts like this buffer to protect a sinful people from the consequences of seeing God's reflected glory. And that tells us something about God's glory. Not only is God's glory powerful and wonderful, right, these kind of adjectives that we would associate with God's glory, but it turns out God's glory is dangerous. It turns out that God's glory is a problem for sinful people. And the problem is not with God's glory, of course, but the reality of sin in the presence of God's glory is the problem. And, I, you know, I, f- I forget who's, I think it's Jonathan Edwards who might have said this, but he said, you know, God's glory is, like, what is God's glory? You think about it, it's abstract, but he would say God's glory is an expression of his holiness. And if that's true, then sin has no chance of being in the presence of such glory. Because if God just like shrugged off sin as being no big deal, then he would cease to be holy and his glory would cease to be glorious. And that's why God can only give a mediated display of his glory. That's why the veil was necessary. This veil functioned like the fence that was uh, at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Or we can even say the veil functioned like uh, the temple curtain that divided the most holy place from the rest of the temple. It has this dual function of protecting the people from the glorious presence of God while at the same time allowing God to be in the midst of his people. Uh, I thought one commentator had a good way of saying it, and he says this, The veil expresses God's judgment. God's reflected glory must be veiled because of their sinful state. Otherwise, it would have destroyed them. Then he says this, The veil also expresses God's mercy. It makes possible for the glory of God to be brought into the midst of the people through Moses. And so he's pointing out this tension in the Old Covenant where on the one hand, God wants to dwell with his people. God wants to manifest his glory to his people, but he knows he can't because then his people would be consumed. But God, um, on the other hand, right, God has to be uh, faithful to his own character, to his own holiness, and to his own glory. So there's this tension, right? It's the same tension in Moses' prayer. He, he wants God's glory. He knows he needs God's glory. And we can even say that God maybe wants to display that glory to Moses, but sin creates a problem, and that glory would consume him and consume the Israelites. So how does God deal with this tension then, right? That's the important question. He deals with it through Jesus through a crucified Christ, through the very message that Paul is preaching uh, to the Corinthians. On the cross, 
the problem of God's glory is actually on full display because Jesus gets consumed by it when he dies on the cross. You know uh, what's so terrible about uh, what Jesus endured when he went to the cross to the point of even sweating blood uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, to the point of even praying to his Father, take, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew what he was about to experience wasn't just a physical uh, crucifixion, but he was about to experience the consequences of being in the glorious presence of God only this time as he hung on the cross, being in the glorious presence of God as a sinner. He knew he would be consumed by God's wrath and judgment because that is the only thing a, God, a holy God can do to sin. That is the only way a, a holy God can respond to sin. Consume it and the person with it. But Jesus did it, and he did it because he has great love for us. He did it because that was his mission. He did it because uh, he was being faithful to his calling that the Father had given him. He did it because he knew this is the only way to really deal with sin and to give us the kind of access to God's presence, to God's glory that Moses himself longed for but couldn't get. And that's why the gospel writers tell us, you know, after Jesus breathes his last breath, what happens? That temple curtain is torn in two after Jesus dies on the cross. It's a way of telling us this, that God's presence, that God's glory is no longer restricted, is no longer veiled from us, but has now been made available on account of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, even though it's been made available to everyone, Paul actually does say not everyone will see it. Uh, in 3.14, he says, uh, regarding the Israelites, he says, their minds were hardened. He goes so far as to even say, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And he's referring, of course, to the Jewish people of his day uh, that he used to belong to. Um, and he, you know, also actively, uh, the, the people who actively persecuted him for uh, preaching Christ. And even though they read the law, their minds are still hardened because it is only through Christ that the veil is taken away. And then he says in 4.4, regarding those who are perishing, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And uh, I think now he's expanding the people beyond the Jewish people and saying, uh, there is this God of the world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing this light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, who is a God of this world? Uh, I think he's referring to Satan here. Uh, the God of this world is Satan. And even though Jesus has made God's glory accessible, there is an enemy at work who is trying to prevent us from seeing God's glory. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through lies and counterfeits. Uh, many, many months ago, if you remember uh, going through a series on the book of Revelation, that was one of the things that we learned from the book of Revelation. Now, Satan has to use counterfeit because he lacks creativity, right? God is, God is the only, uh, God is the creator, which makes him the ultimate creative one. God is the original. All creativity, therefore, will derive from God's creativity, and Satan cannot create anything new or original. Therefore, all he can do is create counterfeits. And how does Satan use counterfeits to blind the minds of unbelievers? I think one of the ways he does it is he counterfeits glory and power. Uh, Satan dangles things like, you know, achievement and talent and wealth 
and control as the way towards glory, right? But then along the way, you fail to see Jesus. Why? Because Jesus doesn't seem as glorious as the vision of life I want for myself sometimes. Because Jesus doesn't seem powerful enough to help me in my situation or my circumstance. Because Jesus doesn't seem to give me the honor that I'm looking for. Because uh, I guess where I am in my context, you know, people will look at me as a fool for being someone who believes and follows Jesus. And therefore, you don't see Jesus because you don't look for glory and power in the right places. And the God of this world has blinded you with these counterfeits, these counterfeit visions of glory and power. And therefore, the veil is still there. So how does that veil get removed? Well, Paul says it in 3.16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Right? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's being a little bit creative here, I think, with the Exodus story because uh, when Moses turned right to the Lord to go up the mountain, he would remove the veil, like physically, right? Turn to the mountain and go up and remove the veil. Paul is kind of using that imagery and saying, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Paul is saying that, you know, when you turn to the Lord, right? When you turn away from these idols, when you, uh, and that's essentially what repentance is, right? To turn it to the Lord, that veil is removed and you will, uh, have access to God's glorious presence because of Christ. Even as a sinner, because of Christ, you'll have access to God's glorious presence. God will shine light out of darkness and give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, friends. You got to look for it in the right place. And you won't find it in worldly victory, worldly strength, worldly status, worldly achievements. I think you find it in weakness. You find it in suffering. You find it in hardship. You find it in loss. And that's why it's important to be able to embrace weakness because without weakness, we might actually miss out on the wonders of the glory and the power of God. And I think that's what Paul sees. And I think that's what he's afraid that the Corinthians are missing. Right? They're not... They're settling for these counterfeit visions of God's glory. And Paul is saying, look, God has made his glory accessible to you. This is not about me. This is not about my status. This is not about my life. This is not about my name. This message that I preach to you, right, and albeit maybe less eloquently than these other preachers, but this message I preach to you is a message of glory. That the very thing Moses asked for, show me your glory, and God could not fully answer, God can now answer it for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need in our stress, in our uh, frustration, in our anger, in our disappointments, in our sense of defeat and failure, whatever it is, what we think we need is all secondary and third and fourth compared to this foundational thing of what we ultimately need. We need to see God's glory. And so it's an odd prayer. I don't know how often I pray that. I don't know how often you pray that in our prayers. But perhaps that is something that we should uh, pray more. God, show me your glory. And so let me close us and let me pray for that for us today. God, we, <clears throat> we pray that prayer of Moses, show me your glory. You know, I hope... Uh, uh, some of us 
can remember those times where we've gotten a glimpse of uh, that glory where we felt uh, this uh, transcending sense of peace and joy uh, when we've been in your presence and when we've had a taste of your glory, when we've experienced something so uh, transcendently beautiful and wonderful that in a sense uh, the things that we concerned ourselves with uh, before seem much uh, smaller and much more insignificant. That, uh, that insecurity that we felt because we tend to put our, uh, our trust in ourselves or in our, uh, our own strength or our own abilities, that insecurity just kind of washes away because we feel this deep sense of security being in your glorious presence. God, that is something that we all need, and especially um, in, in these days, these years, where there are so many reasons to be anxious and so many reasons where, why life is uh, uncertain and so many experiences of loss. Um, you know, we, we fall in danger of you know, falling into either despair or kind of um, you know, living with a sense of numbness as a, as a way to cope. But beyond that, what we need is to be made alive. We need to be resurrected. And the source of that doesn't lie within ourselves, but it comes from you. And so God, please show us your glory. And may that glory um, transform us, transform our hearts from within. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.